Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 83 the end of the beginning. It was after one year at Harrow that Lord Randolph had decided Winston's immediate future lay at the military college at Sandhurst. A lot of other fathers had come to that same conclusion, and in response, Headmaster Weldon had set up a special army class. In essence, these selected boys were readying themselves for military exams. Winston joined this class in September of 1889, at the age of 14. It would be closer to the truth to say that Winston's father had put his son onto a military path, but the details were still to be worked out. There was Woolwich, an academy that readied cadets for commissions in artillery and engineering, but Winston's math was too weak to think that this was a possibility. Instead, Master Moriarty steered the boy towards Sandhurst, its school leading to the infantry and cavalry. They had lower entrance requirements. As usual, Winston wrote home of his readiness for the preliminary entrance exam. Wisely, Weldon wouldn't allow the boy to take it. He simply wasn't ready. But several months later, the headmaster changed his mind and Winnie sat for the exam. Fortune must have been waiting for the boy also, because, simply, the odds were defied at that moment. The boy would pass this first step in December of 1890 for three main reasons, and at least one of them could only be called incredible. First, this sitting was the last time Latin was an optional subject. Second, an essay question covered the U.S. Civil War, and Jenny's mother had made sure the boy had studied the conflict. But with his keen interest in such things, he was bound to dive into its details sooner or later. Lastly, the truly odds-defying happened. On the test, one question had to be a map question, and there were 25 possible countries. Winston wrote all 25 down on pieces of paper and then put them in a hat. He pulled one out, New Zealand. By the time he went to bed that night, he knew all of New Zealand's major physical features. In the morning, when, during the test, he got to the map question, it read, quote, draw a map of New Zealand, unquote. Fortune 
has a sense of humor, it seems. Winston's confidence grew even more, if that's possible, and took the entrance exam in the summer of 1892. He was 17 years old. To his shock, he failed, and failed miserably. He not only failed to score enough for the infantry, but even for the cavalry, and they accepted an even lower score. His marks were thus, 39% in freehand drawing, 30% in Latin, and 28% in math. Of course, he did well in English composition, but all totaled, he was 300 points below the minimum. As stated, Winston was shocked, but his father wasn't. Lord Randolph was disgusted. The next attempt couldn't be made until November the 24th of that year, 1892. Lord Randolph was already considering putting the boy into business. That fall, the entrance exam, and possibly losing out on a career before it even started, not to mention letting his father down, loomed over the boy's head. But in other areas, he was beginning to excel. He finally made the swimming team, was first in the school's rifle corps, did very well in boxing, but his best efforts came from fencing. He went on to earn the right to represent Harrow in a larger fencing contest and defeated everyone placed in front of him from Eton, Winchester, Bradfield, and other schools. That December, he left school again to take his entrance exam, and again, he failed. Nay, he felt even worse this go-around. Lord Randolph was all ready to give up, but Headmaster Weldon stepped up and told the boy's father he felt the third time would do the trick. But, this time, he also recommended Winston have a tutor. So, one Captain Walter H. James entered Winston's life. James was a master crammer and agreed to tutor the boy. Winston, much later, figured out how the man was at the top of his job. James's skill was in his ability to predict the questions that would be asked of the exam givers. They, just like everyone else who does the same thing year after year, gets into a routine and James, after his many years of doing this, had more or less figured out their system. But that didn't mean his charge did not still have to learn a great many things. Their first appointment was set up. But Winston didn't make his first appointment. He also almost missed the rest of his life. That fall of 1892-93, to Winston and his brother Jack were at Lord Randolph's sister-in-law, the Duchess Lily's home. The boys would get up in the morning, and Winston would inform all what the game was to be that day. One morning, Winston decided on the fox and the hare. Winston was the hare. After running and being chased through the woods, the foxes had the hare trapped in the middle of a stone bridge. As Winston wrote later, quote, to plunge or not to plunge, that was the question, unquote. He plunged, throwing himself over the side, but he had miscalculated practically in every way on his way down. He missed all the nearby branches and landed on hard ground after falling 29 feet. The other boys ran home to tell the adults, who summoned Dr. Roos and another physician, 
and, of course, his parents, who were vacationing separately. The inert boy did not regain consciousness for three days. He had also ruptured his kidney. But he eventually came around. The doctors agreed that he was to remain in bed for at least three months. But that did not take into consideration his Sandhurst entrance exam in June of 1893 that year. The boy had just learned another one of life's lessons. His study sessions got underway. As Captain James was a bluffall traditionalist in regards to studying, Winston was quickly bored and frustrated. And a bored Winston was a discipline problem. The boy fought the man who was only trying to help him tooth and nail and refused flat out to be tutored in history. Winston considered he knew enough already on that score. On April 29th, Captain James wrote to Lord Randolph, quote, I doubt his passing, unquote. But the problem was not solely the stubborn teenager. His father was trying to make a political comeback, and as his son was his biggest and most enthusiastic supporter, his mind always swung back to his father's latest speech or move. But by May, Winston realized for himself, and it said, that gifted, imaginative people need to see the light for themselves before accepting something as truth, that this was his last chance. He hated everything about drills and rote memorization, but buckled down and applied himself. By the middle of June, the tutor wrote to Randolph again that he felt good, but not great, about the boy getting through this time. Once again, Captain James's expectations of the test questions were realized, and Winston passed, but just barely. He certainly didn't score high enough to qualify as an infantry cadet. His lot was now with the cavalry. It's worth noting that, in history, a subject Winston felt he was ready for, his grade was higher by many points than all the other test takers. Winston was in Switzerland when he got the news, but of course, checked with the Times just to make sure. Soon, congratulations were flowing in from the extended family, but not from mom and dad, who were in Bavaria taking the cure. The truth was that Randolph was disappointed in his son, again. Because the boy had to settle for the cavalry, his father would have to put out cash to cover the added expense of a horse and all its accoutrements. Lord Randolph's rage would rise again when he learned that Winston had missed going into the infantry by only 18 points. The reason for Randolph's anger was professional and personal. The father, in doing his duty, had already spoken to the Royal Duke of Cambridge, the commander-in-chief of the army and had obtained a place for his son in the 60th Rifles. Now the father would have to go back to his better and tell him that his son did not qualify. What could have been a huge first step for the boy, and for the family in general, had been lost. And it was all Winnie's fault. At least, that's how it looked to Lord Randolph. Jenny saw her husband's rage firsthand and sent her son a warning letter. But there was no readying oneself for the letter that came from the unsteady mind of his father. 
Lord Randolph skipped right over, commenting that his son barely made it in. Instead, he went right to the attack of, quote, your slovingly, happy-go-lucky, harem-scarum style of work. Never have I received a really good report of your conduct in your work from any master or tutor you have had from time to time to do with. Always behind hand, never advancing in your class, incessant complaints of total want of application. And this character, which was constant in your reports, has shown the natural results clearly in your last army examination. You have imposed on me an extra charge of some 200 pounds a year. Unquote. But the man was just getting warmed up. Quote, Do not think I am going to take the trouble of writing to you long letters after every failure you commit and undergo. I no longer attach the slightest weight to anything you may say about your own acquirements and exploits. Unquote. He then predicted that, unless the boy changed his ways, he would become another of many wasted young men from a public school, and that it would be all his own fault. He ended with, quote, Your mother sends her love. Unquote. The times being what they were, his mother did not nor could not write to him and say his father's brain was not functioning properly. So, the boy took his father's letter at face value and believed every word. In this frame of mind, the son replied to his father's scathing letter that he would do better and redeem himself at Sandhurst. But there had to be anger underneath this response. This was Winston, after all. The paper he wrote his response on was smeared by the time he was done writing it, and it wasn't because of tears. At this point in their relationship, there was a definite break. And their relationship almost ended in this state soon after. Or rather, Winston's life almost ended soon after. As he and a friend took a boat out on Lake Geneva, they rowed out for a ways, stripped down, and dove in. But as they played in the water, the wind pushed the boat away. Winston, using what he had learned from Harrow's swimming team, made for the boat, barely caught up to it before his body gave out, and then rode back for his friend, who was equally almost played out. Winston, being his father's son, was still angry when he returned to London, especially when he found out that the tension between himself and his father had been totally unnecessary. Waiting for him at 50 Grosner Square was a letter that informed him that, as several boys with higher scores had dropped out of the school, his placing was now high enough for infantry school. But upon hearing this, Lord Randolph did not reply to his son or his wife, as he no longer trusted her or desired her company. He wrote instead to his mother, Duchess Fanny, quote, it will save me 200 pounds a year. Unquote. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is, 
you can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination, YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. On September 1st, 1893, Winston arrived at the grounds of the Sandhurst Royal Military College. His eyes ranged over the lakes, athletic fields, rifle and revolver ranges, and finally the parade ground. As he was a junior, or pleb, he was put into E Company and taken to his barracks, where he would be for the next 16 months. Winston couldn't help but marvel at it all, but it was the athletic field that worried him the most. At five feet six and one half, he doubted he had the physical strength for what was coming. But he needn't have worried. His soul was home. Winston struggled for the first two weeks, even arguing with his officers on the parade ground about their commands. It looked as if the same troublesome boy had just changed uniforms. But by the end of the second week, he was in his element, and probably for the first time, having fun at school. Being groomed as a future officer, his classes consisted of five subjects, and Latin was not one of them. Instead, his class time evolved around fortifications, tactics, topography, military law, and military administration. They built breastworks, dug trenches, strengthened parapets with sandbags, and blew up simulations of railroad tracks and masonry bridges. It was the perfect combination of his time at home, playing with his brother Jack and cousins, and marshalling his martial toys in his playroom. Later, Winston wrote of these days that it was, quote, a pity that it all had to be make-believed, and that the age of wars between civilized nations had come to an end forever. If only it had been a hundred years earlier, what splendid times we should have had. Fancy being 19 in 1793, with more than 20 years of war, against Napoleon in front of one, unquote. However, it was fortunate that this young man, with his love of war and combat, happened upon the great stage at the opening of the 20th century, for an opponent of freedom far worse than Napoleon would have to be faced and beaten. But of course, the world stops turning for no man. There were events, large and small, but highly personal, taking place outside the grounds of Sandhurst. First, Lord Randolph had planned a political comeback for himself, and his time seemed to be at hand. A year before Winston arrived at the military college, Prime Minister Salisbury and his conservatives were voted out. Gladstone, now in his mid-80s, half-blind, half-deaf, 
and hated by the Queen, formed his last government. And Lord Randolph was thrilled at the prospect. He had his foil again, and would harangue Parliament as he had before, and gain his former preeminence and glory. His son, as always, his greatest fan, later wrote of his feelings at this moment. Quote, no one cherished these hopes more ardently than I. We all look forward to his reconquest of power. Unquote. Spoken like a warrior in training. But because Winston had been kept far from his father most months of every year, there were things he did not know. His parents were cold to each other. The sight of Jenny irritated his father. Their financial situation was tense and getting worse. And finally, Lord Randolph's health was failing him. He had been out of power for six years and should have tried to recapture a strong position earlier. Now, he was at the beginning of his end. Randolph's speeches in the House of Commons started out pretty well, but even his son, who could forgive him almost anything, had to be honest with himself and declare that his father was not in top form. Something was amiss. But before it could even get started, it was all over. The Home Rule Bill passed the House, but was voted down by the Lords. The grand old man, Gladstone, went to the Queen and resigned. Randolph had no tyrant to fight against. As disappointed as the man was, his son easily equaled his feelings. Winston later wrote, quote, I hoped, of course, that I should grow up in time to come to his aid, unquote. And, in small ways, still tried to get close to his father. But each time he was frozen out, by the older man. Lord Randolph was through as seeing his son as anything other than a lazy, undisciplined wastrel. He had given his son as many chances to get into his good graces as he was going to get. Winston acknowledged, quote, If ever I began to show the slightest idea of comradeship, he was immediately offended. I suggested that I might help his private secretary to write some of his letters. He froze me into stone. Unquote. But the father couldn't completely shun his son, not at their social level. There were niceties to be observed. So occasionally, Lord Randolph would invite Winston to join him on the weekends to watch horse races. The son only wanted to spend time with his father, but had to settle for this. Winston's true feelings can be summed up with this. Quote, I would far rather have been apprenticed as a bricklayer's mate, or run errands as a messenger boy, or helped my father to dress the front windows of a grocer's shop. It would have been real, and I should have got to know my father, which would have been a joy to me. Unquote. But later, when he was asked, quote, didn't you like him? Unquote, the response was, quote, how could I? He treated me as if I had been a fool, barked at me whenever I questioned him. I owe everything to my mother, to my father, nothing. Unquote. And on a personal note, may I add, reading about these two, I finally understand more fully the phrase, there was no love lost between them. Now that Winston was doing things he liked and his imagination was fired up, 
his natural state as a leader started to emerge. And nothing demonstrates that better than the story of his gold watch. Upon entering Sandhurst, Lord Randolph gave his son a gold watch from Dents in London. And one day, when the father visited the shop to check on his own watch, he found that the very watch he had given his son as a present had been returned to the shop for repairs. Twice. The first time to remove a dent, and the second time because it had been submerged in six feet of water. The insides had been practically ruined. Lord Randolph, remaining as composed as possible, told the shop owner to repair it, but sent it to him, not to his son. He then wrote to Winston and said that he, quote, could not believe that you could be such a young stupid, unquote. But that is only the beginning of the story. Here's Winston's version. One day, as he walked by Sandhurst's wish string, he bent over to pick up a stick. Sadly, his cadet uniform did not have deep pockets. So, as he doubled over, the watch came out and seemed to find the only part of the stream that was six feet in depth. Panicking, the boy stripped down and dove in, over and over, until exhaustion almost caused him to drown. But still, he hadn't located the watch. Then, quote, the next day, I had the pool dredged, but without result, unquote. So, the next day, he asked and received permission to seek the assistance of 23 infantrymen and, quote, dug a new course for the stream, unquote, to reroute it. Of course, he was in charge of every detail. Next, he borrowed a fire engine from a nearby village and, quote, pumped the pool dry and so recovered the watch, unquote. This explanation had gone to his mother, who then relayed it to Randolph. The father, seeing the effort behind the recovery, told his son he could have the watch back after he was finished at Sandhurst. But there was drama of another sort beyond the parade ground at the military school. The Churchills were feeling the financial crunch and cutting expenses wherever they could. Lord Randolph sold the Connacht Place house and moved in with his mother at her mansion at Grosvenor Square. Mrs. Everest, womb, was now Duchess Fanny's housekeeper. But the Duchess was also cutting costs and soon found herself needing to release some of her domestic staff. Mrs. Everest womb, was let go. She had been with the Churchills for 19 years. By the time Winston learned of this, she had been gone for three months. The young man, or rather, the little boy inside him, was beyond shocked. He wrote to his mother, demanding the details, but she replied that it was not his concern and that she would not discuss it with him. He begged her to relent. Quote, Besides, I should be very sorry not to have her at Grosvenor Square, because she is, in my mind, associated more than anything else with home, unquote. But it was done and would not be undone. His letter was sent out on October 29th, 1893. He did not receive a follow-up to it. But Lord Randolph, on hearing of it, sent Womb 17 pounds. Mrs. Everest's sisters helped her out and kept her off the streets. 
Wu never forgot her young charges and sent them letters and, on their birthdays and at Christmas, sent little gifts. When Winston started Sandhurst, he was ranked 92nd out of a class of 102. But, as we have seen, he was now where he belonged, and his competence and confidence shot up to the sky. At the end of his first term, his examination scores were near the top of his class, his best grades coming from tactics and military law. As for his marks in conduct, even that improved significantly. Good, but unpunctual, was the final call here. He would always be unpunctual, until he achieved a position where the trains, ships, and eventually planes had to wait on him. With these academic results, Lord Randolph relented on his not allowing Winston weekend visits to London. And this, for a young man, was the time to head to London. The Victorian era, with its constrained views on practically everything, was coming to an end. Entertainment was broadening and becoming more acceptable. One of the biggest changes, at least for the future Winston, was the press. The printing press had just gone through another transformation, and in response, a superior kind of paper to feed it was discovered in Germany. So now, the machines could put out newspapers faster, and paper was now in a better condition, and cheaper, now that the tax on it was lifted, along with the newspaper tax. Journalism and literacy literally exploded in the UK. In 1858, 5% of the army's recruits could read and write. By the time Churchill was in Sandhurst, that level had been raised to 85.4%. Of all the positive moments at Sandhurst for Winston, the highest had to be on December 2, 1894, when he was selected, along with 14 other seniors, to receive the Queen's Commission and were chosen to go against each other for the school's annual writing prize. After it was all over, he couldn't wait to write his father of the results. Quote, well, we rode, jumped with and without stirrups and without reins, hands behind our backs, and various other tricks. Then five were weeded out, leaving only ten of us. Then we went into the field and rode over the numerous fences several times. Six more were weeded out, leaving only four in I was wild with excitement, and I rode, I think, better than I have ever done before, but failed to win the prize by one mark, being second, with 199 out of 200 marks, unquote. Doubtless, his father was not pleased, as it only rehashed feelings about the 60th rifles. But Winston had turned his heart away from the infantry. For him, there was now only the cavalry. And at fault for this was, ironically, one of Lord Randolph's friends, Colonel John Brabazon, who commanded the 4th Queen's Own Hussars, Light Cavalry. During the early time of Winston being at Sandhurst, Brabazon, who had seen action in the Afghan War in 1878 and 79, invited the young man to Ireland at Aldershot. When the young man arrived, he saw 30 officers in their glorious blue and gold uniforms, the trophies the 4th Hussars had gathered during their last 200 years of campaigns, and was, well, 
swept away. At least his heart and imagination were, and those were the two strongest parts of the young man. Returning to school, Winston made his wish of going in that direction known to his parents. Randolph was again upset and disappointed by his son. Of course, their conversations went through Jenny. It had been that way for several years now. The dutiful wife parroted her husband's words of rejection to the young man, who complained that he was finally doing something his father wanted, taking things seriously and using his common sense. He was not a good soldier, but was an excellent writer. It seemed a natural choice to him. He was also showing another trait his father had encouraged, ambition. Quote, promotions much quicker in cavalry than in infantry, unquote. But his father was adamant. When Winston finished at Sandhurst, ranking 20th out of a class of 130, he thought his grades might get his father to change his mind, or at least respond with a word or two of praise. It was not to be. Any chance of the latter was long gone. Besides, when he left school, his parents were again on a trip, literally going around the world. Winston spent the next several weeks floating from one relative's or friend's house to another, the house in London having been sold. He was waiting to be gazetted and then commissioned. But those weeks were spent dealing with another weighty matter. He was finally told, but only selectively, of his father's failing health. Strangely, Winston wrote after leaving Sandhurst, quote, All the days were good, and each day better than the other. Ups and downs, risks and journeys, but always the sense of motion and the illusion of hope, unquote. One can easily imagine the word hope being replaced with freedom. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Up to this point, Winston and Jack had no idea their father was seriously ill. Jenny, British in everything but birth, was doing her best to be a nurse without letting any news get out. But by now, it was hard to hide. Lord Randolph's speech was slurred. He suffered facial tremors and moments of dementia as his brain and spine gave way to the disease inside him. His doctors knew the stress of politics was only hastening the end, and so convinced him to take a long sea voyage. Whether that was good for him or not was not the point. They needed him to get away from Parliament, from London. The idea was for the couple to travel around the world, accompanied by a young doctor, a Dr. George Keith. Randolph's family did not want Jenny to go, as her presence only upset the man all the more. But she was going. She owed him that much. So, on June 27, 1894, months before Winston finished at Sandhurst, they set off on the SS Majestic, bound for New York. 
But this trip was to be Lord Randolph's swan song. Those Americans of Randolph's circle noticed the change in him immediately upon his arrival. He had been to New York ten years earlier and had captured the heart of the upper society. By the time the couple reached Asia, Randolph's condition had only gotten worse. He could no longer be trusted to control himself in public. Upon reaching Madras in India, Dr. Keith knew the end was near. On November 24, 1884, a month before Winston left Sandhurst, Keith wired Dr. Roos that they were making straight for home. During all this, Winston was gradually told more and more of the truth, and being young and in the prime of his life, he thought his father, still his hero, could overcome this, whatever it was. The details were not forthcoming. When Dr. Roos heard from Dr. Keith in Madras, he took it upon himself to summon Winston and tell him honestly that his father's end was near. His parents finally reached London that Christmas Eve. Even then, Winston was not allowed to remain in the same house as his father. Jenny still hadn't figured out exactly what to say. But early in the morning of January 24, 1895, Winston was awoken from his bed in a neighbor's house and told of his father's death. Winston wrote, quote, I ran in the darkness across Grosvenor Square, then lapped in snow, unquote. Three days later, Lord Randolph was buried in Bladden Churchyard, and a memorial service was held in Westminster Abbey. In the days that followed, Randolph's defenders defended his actions. His enemies spoke of his lack of finesse and his coarse language. When a young man from the treasury came to see Jenny and demanded the robes Randolph used during his time as Chancellor of the Exchequer, she replied, quote, I am saving them for my son, unquote. And as time would show, these words were prophetic. She also did her best to make sure the real cause of his illness was kept secret. Duchess Fanny, also stricken with grief, let loose her pain and anger against Jenny and Winston. For Jenny, this was partially deserved. She was mourning, but in all honesty, mostly for herself. Count Kinsky, her only other true love, had married two weeks before the Churchills had reached London. But as for the son, it was unjust. Theirs was a complex relationship, but Winston had never been anything but loyal towards his father. Quote, All my dreams of comradeship with him, of entering Parliament at his side and in his support, were ended. There remained for me only to pursue his aims and vindicate his memory. Unquote. But if this was going to happen, the young man needed money and debts had claimed most of the 75,951 pounds Randolph's estate had left behind. Winston could only claim the 120 pounds a year he was to be paid as a subaltern of the Queen's own 4th Hussars. Jenny informed her son that she would give him another 300 a year to help with expenses. It's not clear if she told him of the $10,000 a year she was to receive from the rental of the Jerome family home in Madison Square in New York. But it didn't matter as much as it could have, 
Winston, the man, the warrior, the tactician, had been loosed from within, and it was never to recede again. A plan was coming together within the sad teenager's mind. He would be the next Churchill in Parliament. But in order for that to happen, he needed money and fame. But the fame had to come first. Where to get it? Of course, by being a military hero. But there were obstacles. Quote, in the closing decade of the Victorian era, the Empire had enjoyed so long a spell of almost unbroken peace that medals and all they represented in experience and adventure were becoming extremely scarce in the British Army. Unquote. Still, wars, though not major ones, were happening all the time. He just had to look around. And who would be there to stop him? His mother? No, she would be in his life, but she would still be too busy living hers. Young Winston expanded his chest to its greatest thickness, 33 and one half inches, and realized, quote, I was now, in the main, the master of my fortunes, unquote. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. Um, just to remind you, the tour website should be up soon, um, as soon as Paul Finch, who built my website, uh, gets a chance to put it up. He's a very busy man, just got married to the beautiful Emma, and uh, has his own podcast, uh, previously in the Alpha Quadrant, where they talk about the um, Star Trek show Enterprise. And he's promised me I could be a guest on there at the opening, or near the opening of Season 3, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, just wanted to say hello to the newest members, Stephen R. from Allentown, Pennsylvania, and Michael D. from California, and wanted to thank two people for their donations, Joseph B. from Emerald, Queensland, Australia, and Stephen F. from Westwood, Massachusetts. So thank you very much for that. Got a lot of books to buy as we move into uh, other areas. And moving on to the trivia part of our show, um, Queen Victoria, who reigned for a very long time, obviously, um, there were at least eight assassination attempts on her life during her reign. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Somebody needs to do a podcast on her. Um, I think that would be incredible. And I would like to end this episode with a plug for a good friend. His name is Luke Whitehorn. He did a talk history with me um, a couple of episodes back. He's the one who built the map for me as far as the attack on Taranto. But you probably all know him from his um, CGI work on the film Iron Sky. He did the uh, the uh, special effects for that. He did the cool battle scenes at the end. Um, so for anybody out there who needs work for something like that, um, you can always check him out at LukeWhitehorn.com. And though we are working on a project together, I really can't go into right now. Um, he does need, you know, like real work. So if anybody wanted to uh, check him out on his website, please do. I'm sure he would appreciate it. So um, obviously this um, series on Churchill is going to take a very long time. I'm sorry, but hopefully you're finding it interesting. I certainly am. I'm learning a lot, and that's the whole point. Um, I'll also do the same thing to Stalin, Roosevelt, and uh, anybody else uh, that we feel uh, deserves it uh, in their time, of course. So we'll um, we'll pick up with Churchill um, as soon as I can. And for you members out there, like I told you, um, we're gonna we're gonna st keep with the Krupps, but we're also gonna do some stuff about what the Americans had to go through in Paris when the Germans took over and uh, what Jesse Owens went through in the 1936 Olympics. So I'll be getting those out as soon as I can. 
And finally, thank you for everyone who follows me on Facebook and Twitter. Um, please send me a message anytime. That'd be great. Love to talk to people when I can get to it. As you can probably guess, I do a this day in World War II, but I also try to do other little things to let you know what I'm, what's going on when an episode's about to come out. So just thank you to everyone who listens. And I will see you as soon as I can with episode 84, the next part of Churchill's life. And I think it's getting pretty interesting. Um, take care, everyone. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.